0: So welcome to the global discussion discussions with creatives leaders and thinkers uh today i'm joined by tom morley the rock star activator founder and well-known global drummer of the scritti uh, uh, group i'm really delighted that tom's joined us here again and uh, it's great to catch up with tom after one or two years it's going to be a fascinating episode. I'm really delighted you're here, Tom. So for people that maybe don't know as much about your story as I do, could you maybe tell us a little bit about your journey, where it all started? You know, yeah. the Squiddy Polity backstory is unbelievable. The stories that you're publishing online are unbelievable. Mm-hmm. They're just fantastic. And maybe bring us up to today where you're working with teams and you're a, you're a keynote speaker in your own right. Thanks, Tom.
1: I'm going to start in reverse order just because it's easier for me. Um, So, right now, today, I've been talking to a client I'm working with on Monday in London, and I've told them to get me a headset mic. Um, Very often they say, We've only got a lapel mic. And I say, I need a headset. Why do you need a headset? It's because on a headset or Madonna mic or TED talk mic, you can hear everything, right? And it's become Really important now these days, when authenticity is at a premium, that people get that they get all of that authenticity because I could I've got a drum kit here right, so I could be hitting things quite loud, and they'd get the they'd get the loud message, but um, they need to hear me when when they first see me and they think he's that they need to hear me say um, is anybody else having a bad hair day? because that then gives them permission to sort of connect with me, other than go, oh, no, they've got this freak. Why didn't we just stick to PowerPoint and talk about it rather than have to do it ex- experientially? Because people are scared of experiential stuff. Now, how did I link that drumming, uh, which is an electronic drum kit, but it's, you know, then in Skriti I had a... Uh, acoustic drum kit. How do I link that to what I did now? Because it, we, we were doing a gig in Berlin. And um, it was all going well. It, we would just we'd just come out of the sort of indie movement and we were moving um, more towards the mainstream. It was going great. and um, But then there was a power cut. They often had that in those days, which would be the early 80s, especially abroad. We didn't have them a lot here, here but they um, in Germany and Belgium, not so much France, but that kind of side of Europe. They converted things like old water treatment plants, or it was kind of beyond warehouses. It was these weird venues they had. So it's one of them. So we could we, we didn't, we weren't that surprised when the power went down. But we had a choice. Now we could have written a, a, a stiff letter to the organizers in German, and we'd have had to get someone, to, you know, we couldn't have done it in chat GPT, we'd have had to do it. So, um, so we had that option, say, well, we didn't expect this, and uh, we will never return to work with your organization. We were quite stroppy. However, I just carried on drumming. I thought, we don't need electric- electricity, we don't need lights, we don't need-, don't need anything. I'll just keep the beat, and then when they sort it out, we'll come back in. Now, something happened, which I didn't plan for, nobody could have planned for. The all started singing Bob Marley's, y-oh, 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 y-oh. So I started joining in with them, with one side of that. Getting it, you know, I was already playing a sort of reggae beat anyway, but I just customized it to them. And then, um, probably only about three minutes later, all the lights came up, uh, power on, green was there, Neil was there. Green immediately just came in with a chop, you know, the top. Neil worked out some bass thing. And um, and people said, and there's mass applause. People said to me at the bar afterwards, Do you always do that power cut trip? at your gigs because it works really well in bringing the audience together
0: (laughs) so i love that tom that's brilliant
1: (laughs) so what 20 i don't know 30 years i don't know how many years later yeah probably 20 years later um i'm doing it with corporate groups and and i'll tell you one other thing about this which is why i can't tell you in a linear fashion my story because it doesn't it never occurs to me as a linear fashion but when i was um 16 well that would be 16 1970 yeah 16 i hitchhiked to the isle of white festival um to see Jimi hendrix i thought i'd gone to see jimmy hendrix and i did you know yeah he was great but the person who affected me most was john sebastian from the loving spoonful because he just came on stage acoustic guitar microphone tie dyed sort of outfit, kind of white denim tie dyed. Um, He was obviously, you know, uh, he'd been uh, he was sort of spliffed up, but he's a very good communicator, John Sebastian. So he would do this thing. And I've never forgotten this. Other rock groups came on before him. And they were going, come on, sing along with the chorus. I can't hear you, you know, and then we would all so we'd all sing a bit louder might be free or something, it was all right now, and, um, and then they go, I can't hear you, and we, um, after a while, when you're in the audience, you've been camping in a field, you've been rained on, you know, you've been cooking over a bonfire, there was no uh, there was no catering at the Isle of Wight Festival, we all just cooked on bonfire, after a while, the people shouting, I can't hear you, when they just got out their freaking helicopter, you think, well, we're singing as loud as we can, mate, you know, you can't hear us, your ears cleaned out but john sebastian would just go okay so why don't you join me and he'd go nashville cats nashville so he'd just take it move away from the mic he only had one mic anyway. so we knew if we wanted to hear the song we had to sing it and he and he was doing it as a as a kind of joke and one thing that And and it really worked, you know, engaged all of us, you know, and we're looking at each other. Yeah, we're creating the song here rather than, you know, so that again, it kind of feeds into give it, give it to the people, give it to the people to to complete it, because you'll know in Gestalt um, psychology, it's like the Apple logo, you know, you see the apple, you see the leaf on the top, you see the bite out of it. And what everybody's thinking is, if I took that leaf, would it fit in exactly into the bite, you know? So it's called the, it's called the um, act of closure, saying so gestalt, it's all about closure, you do the act of closure. So that's what we did in Berlin. That's what John Sebastian did at the Isle of Wight. And that's what I do with... Um, corporate groups when I'm playing, I get them all playing and they're playing with me and I'm mic'd up. And then I just step away from the mic and I go, it's yours. Sometimes I even leave the room. I leave, or I leave the stage. And at that point they they don't stop. They go, oh dear, it's all up to us. <laughs> and then they get even better. They don't they don't get worse because I've left and I was holding a beat. They suddenly create, they take ownership of the beat. They do that act of closure themselves. So,
0: The point I would, I would make on that is for anybody who isn't familiar with how you engage audiences at live events, mm. it's a joy to behold. And if mm. you've experienced that firsthand, it's incredible. So do check out Tom's uh, online videos. There's a few of them uh, with him in there. And, of course, you'll get all the back, the, the, the Squiddy Polity videos will pop up as well, I'm sure, when you start looking for Tom's name online. But uh, what you're doing with brands and engaging audiences and engaging people, it really works in that environment. I suppose the other part of the question that we haven't got to was about maybe the earlier days with Squiddy Polity and, you know, mm. touring the world and the mm. that kind of, um, I suppose, some of those wonderful stories that you're sharing online at the moment that you're posting, that you're writing.
1: Yeah, was Scritty. We um we formed an art school in I can tell you this chronologically. We formed an art school in, in the late 70s. Green, I met Green really early in Freshers Week. We didn't go to any Freshers events, but we met in the bar and uh we just kind of got on. I I don't know why, because he'd come from Wales and he he had a middle class background. I come from you know, some sleepy suburb of Brighton, working class background. But we'd both gone. Maybe this this was it. We'd both gone to Leeds to get as far away from home as possible. Not that we're particularly unhappy at home. But we just, you know, what it's like when you're young, you think, yeah, come on, I want to see the world. So I went as far up the M1 as I could, when it ended at Leeds. And also, we both chose that course because it, at the time, it was the freest course in the country. You, you, you were meant to do a foundation year, try a bit of everything and go, right, I'm going to be a screen printer, right, I'm going to be a performance artist, right, I'll to and then you'd apply to the college that did the best screen printing, or that was most geared up for performance. Now, Leeds Polytechnic, as it was then, was geared up for everything, because, um, and actually, this is only occurring to me right now. It was geared up for everything because it also, as a polytechnic, it catered for people who just wanted to learn skills. So consequently, you could do wallpaper, um, not design, but you could do. There was rooms where people would just go and learn to wallpaper, to be painters and decorators and uh, graphic designers. So all the printing, all the craft stuff was in there, as long as as well as all the fine art stuff and it was like just this big <laughs> airplane hangar it was a whole lower floor of the Polytechnic which was this big gray industrial block right it's almost bow- uh, no to call it Bauhaus would be complimentary it was a 60s monstrosity so we were in there and um and then there was the university where the uh the gang of four were getting themselves together and the Mekons and stuff and they were over there was a motorway between us, a sunken motorway which was very symbolic because it looked like oh ivory towers you know so with the, people always say about the leads scene there was a pub in the middle it's called the fenton people always used to say ah and in fact i was invited up there to talk about it by a film crew and they said we're, we did it in the fenton and they said so you all used to get together and um, talk about music, did you, and politics and uh, The Clash and Malcolm McLaren and the Anarchy Tour. Must have been amazing. And I said, yeah, well, the Gang of Four used to <clears throat> sit over there in that corner. They didn't talk to us. The Mekons knew the Gang of Four a little bit. Um, Mark Armand used used to come in, but he just kept himself to himself. And at that point, Mark Armand had this huge... It wasn't afro it wasn't an afro, it was curly hair like Harpo Marx, right? these golden curls. and he used to paint these pictures of himself as a clown with this with this golden glow all around him. So there was no that there, there was there, it, it was a hotbed of politics and uh, invention and creation and but we we all did it singly, you know, pretty much. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd talk to, we would talk to each other at the bath. We happened to meet each other, but it'd be more like, um, I was here first, mate, you know, so uh, it'd be more like that rather than...
0: That's really interesting, Tom. Yeah, yeah. 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 So
1: I, I know Gavin Butt has just written a, a book about it. I, and I did talk to Gavin for that book, and I've spoken to him since about my own book. Um But I haven't read it yet, so I don't know... If he portrayed it that way, that we're all there, yeah, creating the revolution. It wasn't, it was like yeah, I mean, you'll know in the Spanish Civil War, the uh it, you think communists against fascists, but all the different communist factions, I think they added up at the end of the war, the amount of ammunition they fired at their own side and the amount of ammunition, ammunition they fired at the fascists, and it was more. The infighting was more. So Anyway, that's that's an aside. So um, Green and I, we were artists along with other artists, and and then when the Anarchy tour came along and the Clash and people, we were very left wing anyway. So um, we said, what are we doing? We're just making art for the bourgeoisie. That's we used these words in those days for the bourgeoisie to increase their. Spiritual status in the world and create an even bigger division between them and the working class. So we'll give up art and we'll form a band. Now, Green had already played in a, in a band in Wales, guitar and singing. I'd never played, I'd only ever played bongos at a party before and noticed that I had a bit of a beat, but so and my dad. Being a working clerk, I, I call him, I mean, he was ad- addicted to dexedrine after the war, um, and he stayed addicted. Consequently, his brain for paperwork was terrible. He he would never fill in my grant forms. So I got a full grant, but it always fill him in late. And this particular month, he didn't fill them in at all. So right at the end of our term, when we said, let's form a band, I suddenly got this big wedge of money saying, here's all the money we should have given you for this term. So I went so I went downtown and bought a drum kit, which I couldn't play. Um, And uh, I played it for about a week. And then I just put all the other drums in the corner and I sat at the snare drum for a month, just learning to play. And I went to the music college down the road and I got snare drum lessons. And when I could get everything right on the snare drum that I wanted to, I gradually introduced the drum at time. So, right, now I'm going to do snare and bass, right? And because you have to develop this or these, uh, this autonomy of limbs, they call it. And But I wasn't that good. I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I'd be... I'll do this another time with the drum kit. I'd be like, um, all right, snare. Oh, I need hi-hat. Oh, simple. Ding! bass drum and um there's a particular song i think it's called opec imac that we did on the peel session and i remember reading this write-up of it and this journalist said oh tommy's obviously listened to a lot of jazz drummers particularly and he said the name of this drummer he said because he's so sparse in the way he plays the way you know, you leave such space for us all to kind of feel the beat. And all it was, that I could not play the kit when we did that. I, I just had to play a drum at a time, right? But I could still keep the pulse. That was the thing. So it wasn't like I was letting the music down. It's just I was kind of letting it down in terms of standard autonomy of limbs. Because later on, the hardest rhythm I ever learned was uh, Lust for Life. Dun, 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 dun because it's the, the feel of the uh, ride symbol. it's like, a it's like, I don't know, it's a lesson in rhythm all on its own. So you've got to get that right. And then you just got to back it up with the sort of machine gun sort of mechanics of the bass drum and the snare. So you got to do that. So it's a, I, I learned later um, from that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi wrote, wrote the book Flow, you know, he said flow is found at the intersection of discipline and surrender. So you have to have all the discipline to be a drummer, like me and the snare drum, introducing things. And then when you get on stage, you have to have the surrender because any musician will say that, especially, it's especially attributed to jazz musicians, that they, if you see the way they pass solos around, they surrender at different times and the rest of the group is the discipline they don't all surrender all together or i oh they wouldn't i, I mean may, may, they might say they do that actually some people some groups <clears throat> but i've found that you've got to have someone you've got to have someone being the discipline and that's often my role in a band in a in a session because in a corporate session that's what i do i'm the discipline they can surrender if they all just surrender it would be chaos it would be like uh you know what they expect it's going to be so discipline surrender but and i've added something to that because Semihai's formula is a little bit too scientific for me so i I'm, i made it visual i said the, the groove is found at the crossroads of Discipline Street and Surrender Avenue and you'll find me at the mischief bar. Now, I, I wanted to add mischief into that because that's what you need. That, that is, and there's, um there's a book called Kate Fox called uh, Watching English. Have you read that book? Some of your people know it, I know, because she, she's an anthropologist and she looked at the English particularly with an anthropologist's eyes, like she would study a tribe and say, oh, they eat in this way, and they have these rituals. So she looked at us in that way and she said, why, why is it that English people, they think they have such a great sense of humor, and we have a reputation abroad for having a good sense of humor, why? And she said, well, I'll tell you why, it's because as an anthropologist, if you go to Japan, there'll be certain times in the day for a Japanese person or a team or that, that when they're allowed to make jokes, right? Certain uh, things definitely no humor. Same with the French, same with the German, Germans. The, no, no, no. the English is 24 hours a day, you know, from the moment you're born, you're allowed to make jokes till the day you die. and um, And very often they're quite mischievous. So it's in our culture to be mischievous. And who are? the most interesting. I, I've never watched Game of Thrones, but um, I'm sure there's some mischievous characters. I know there's, you know, Loki, of course, uh, got his own show, because in Norse mythology, he's the mischievous one. So, so we like mischief. We like, you know, why are heist movies so attractive to us? Well, you know, Ocean's Eleven is one of my favourite movies ever. Why? there's so much mischief in it even amongst themselves they're tricking each other to get the best performance out of each other so it's um yeah so discipline surrender and mischief if i was if i yeah i I don't know what to call my book uh, but that's got to be somewhere on the cover i think that's close to the
0: top top of the list yeah
1: hadn't it it's got to be because that would be the red thread if you look at all the things i've done they're they've all got an element of mischief in there, and they've all got an element of discipline. And they yeah. so so Tom.
0: Let me ask you then, because I mean that's I, I didn't know that that part about the the grant coming through, mm-hmm. and having the you know all of a sudden, well let's form a band, and then like as if by magic the grant money suddenly comes through. Yeah, and you say, yeah. buy a drum kit, but to that point, yeah. you only ever played the bongos. You hadn't had a drum kit before. You you hadn't you hadn't sat down with the, you know the sticks and 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 no, uh, no. and you no. learned it all sort of piece by piece
1: yeah so
0: yeah. how do you go from that to the i suppose the international stardom that you did have the success the highs like what was the turning point when you look back was there anything that you you could hang your hat on and go it was that i remember i remember something was changing when we felt this or was it just a gradual change
1: well i mean it, 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 we did everything wrong um we 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 did everything you shouldn't have done so um so when we, we took our first uh recordings to rough trade and in our plan that was the thing right okay so we'll make this music that we started in leeds we'll we'll go and get a place in london some friends of ours the year before at art school a moved to Carroll Street, which was all squat squatted houses. And one had just become available when we wanted to go down there. It's quite a long story. But anyway, we nabbed it. it. There was a lot of competition for it, but we we got in there quickly through me getting through the back window as soon as the woman left. This old lady leaving who has been rehoused in this beautiful block nearby. Um. So I got in, you know, within minutes. Right, great. Change the locks, and then, um, and then she came back. She got got a cab back, and she was at the front door trying to get in, right. And eventually, I, I had to open the door, uh, and she said, uh, "I've come back from my lamp. I left my reading lamp." I said, "Oh, I, I'll get it for you," and but then she said, "What are you doing in my house?" And I said, "Well, we're you know." Uh, we're a band, we we need some of the lift. And and then she said, but I've paid the rent until Monday. This was on a Saturday. Said, I've paid the rent until Monday. You you have to leave. You can't, you know, there, there was obviously, she was quite quite rightly emotionally attached to her house. And within 15 minutes of leaving, she's got these bloody squatters in there. You know? <laughs> they would have only, uh, it's what they used to call the metal curtains. They'd have only put up um, corrugated iron on them. On the front and locked it up because so the council wanted to demolish the street. That's what they wanted. So, consequently, I had to go and no, actually, I had to get the van back because I'd borrowed the van. I had all that stuff in the van. We had to unload it all into our friend's house. I had to drive the van back to Leeds, and Green had to sort of hover at their window <laughs> for two days for the weekend. He hated it, right? Um, it was so sort of on the edge, you know, and you saying, you've got to stay, you know, I can't do this on my own. And um, I was going, I've got to get, the I promised to get the van back, I borrowed it from a free school. It was this huge comma van, it was like a uh, shoe box on wheels, it was so unstable. Anyway, we put it all in our friend's room. And then we I came back and did the same thing on early Monday morning, got through the back window, did it, changed the locks. So, um, what was that connected to? Oh, it's somebody doing everything wrong. Yeah, so we went to Rough Trade. We we fitted out one of those rooms as a re- rehearsal room. We used to go around skips and get all um, old carpet and stuff and bang it on the wall. And um, we, yeah. And then Rough Trade said, well, yeah, Jeff Travis. He said, yeah, I kind of like it. But um, it's not ready for us, you know. Good luck, good luck guys. But they were the only company we were interested in. And and so we thought, well, and Gr- Green was devastated. He said, but that, you know, what do we do now if they don't like us? And uh, I remember this, it was a conversation at the bus stop. And I said, well, I still think we're the greatest band in the world, you know, which I did. And he said, oh, if you do, um, all right, well, let's put it out on our own let's let's talk to some people about diy records because that was a time there's groups like the desperate bicycles and people have made their own records. so we went to visit desperate bicycles they told us names of pressing plants um where we could get rubber stamps done they were great they're really lovely people they were kind of hippies it was it was it was a bit tetchy, because we weren't we were we were pretending to be punks, right? We were we weren't meant to like hippies. And there's these hippies, lovingly given us all this information about how to be good, indie people, you know dissing hippiness, even though we'd all been hippies, you know, we had to keep it quiet. So, um, so then we we went to the in order to get to the pressing plant without we had to get an acetate cup. So we went to a place, it was near the BBC. It's called Porky Prime Cut. It's where you took, took your tape, they put it on a big machine, they boosted anything they thought needed boosting, reduced anything, and then they gave you an acetate. This guy, he, he used to be called Porky because he was a bit big, and um, but he was proud of it. And so he'd write. If you look at records from that time, it would say Porky Prime Cut in the centre because he'd write it in the acetate with a with this tiny little scalpel, almost It's on some of the um, uh, raincoats records as well, Every, everyone used to go there. So we had two acetates, and one had a bit more base on it. And one was just the straight cut as we recorded it. So we wanted to take the more bassy one to the pressing plant. So we said, well, look, that's BBC, let's just drop it in. Uh, um, (laughs) reception and BBC reception, then it was like going to a theatre or something. It's like there's just some someone at a desk, you know, in this little door. And uh, there's this guy with a sort of hat on, like the sort of person you'd see at an art gallery, you know, just stands there all day, look, just checking nothing's going wrong. And so we spoke to him and we said, um, Hello, would you give this to John Peel? When he comes in, please? And uh, he said, oh, "Well, I'll give it to John Waters, his um, his producer. Who are you?" And he said, "Well, we are uh, um, the uh, band uh, Scritti Politti." All oh, right, Scritti Politti. So, because we we didn't know, you know, we we didn't know if we were going to be a band or not, really. Um, so that night we we were at the we we're at the pub. Um, uh, the engineer and. And we took a transistor radio with us. And we said, oh, it's John Peel's on 10 o'clock. Let's just have a listen. And he said, um, yeah, good evening everyone. Um, This evening I'm gonna play you um, Clash. I've got a new one from Susie and the Banshees and Scree Politi. And um, and we we said, what? He said our name on our end, not only that, he played all, all the tracks on that. Acetate was three, and he said, uh, Yeah, if you're listening, guys, give us a call, um, and uh, we'll fix up for you to come in and do a session for us. Now, doing the John Peel session was hard, you know, it's hard to get one of those. We, we didn't even have a record, he hadn't been to any of our games, he didn't know anything about us, but there was something about that that he just said, Oh, this is yeah, that's very interesting, guys, yeah, come on in, which is what we did. So and then we were the first to take that session and make a record out of it. We bought the tapes off them. Nobody else had ever done that. So, so when I say we did everything wrong, uh, wrong is probably the wrong word. We did everything differently. Different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: but, well, Tom, what, that, what, that is an amazing story. That mm-hmm. is just unbelievable.
1: Mm-hmm. I haven't and told that to anyone. You're the first, actually. That is an
0: incredible story incredible that uh, you know from the the grant money to the drum set to the to the learning to play yeah to the, well well they won't take us so we'll we'll go and we'll ask these these other guys how do we make a record like physically make a record yeah and then we'll we'll hand it to some guy at the bbc who might hand it to some guy who might listen to it yeah i mean if you were putting money on it you'd say that's never going to work as a strategy and that night, that very night, John Peel's going, hey, listen to these guys.
1: Yeah, that night. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting goose pimples just thinking about it. Because, uh, of course, because it's my story, I think, oh, yeah, that's the way it happened. But if you hear it, uh, I mean, there's so many things that could have not clicked in there, aren't there? You know, that it's, guy, the incredible. guy on the door of the BBC could have been in a bad mood or it yeah. being an acetate he could have dropped it, put it on the shelf, and it would have broken because it was like an old seventy-eight record. You know, it's yeah. not; it wasn't yeah. plastic. It and it a- was
0: that first session that John called you in for? Yeah, that you actually bought the recordings from them.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, it didn't cost us that much, but because in those days recording studio it was, a, it was a faff, you know. And we said, well, we've done it. You know, we like the results. Um, why say? Because what? Um, yeah, that's right. You have to do it fairly quickly. But because we'd, we'd actually played, we have not played many gigs, but we'd rehearsed a lot. We used to rehearse every day. So consequently, when we came to play in the studio and they just stuck mics everywhere, they didn't really separate us. Um, we said, but that's, that's what we do. You know, that's the best we can do. Stick us in the studio with some producer. We're not going to do any better than that because he's going to separate us. And then we're not going to have the chemistry between us when we play. And so
0: it's very similar. There's, I mean, there are some similarities between the other story you were sharing where, you know, the power goes out in Germany yeah, and you just keep it going. Like, it, yeah. it's kind of like it's a bit unorthodox. And then some, some guy at the bar later says, Oh, I love where you do that bit where you turn the power off. Yeah. Um. I mean that it, it there are some sort of, unique ways different ways that you went about it and i love like there's not many people if i say to them you know how, how did it happen that will say yeah. do you know what we did it wrong we kind of did it very differently we didn't follow the the norm and i think i think you're still doing that today tom you know you're yeah, very I, creative you're a very influential huh. rock star activator
1: can i tell you one more story about that and it, it's a corporate one uh because it it uh, I mean it's lovely you're saying this because it confirms in me what what I do. Um when we when we lived in Fulham, this was what, 20 years ago. I was looking out the window. We we lived by the river in this sort of flat, and we, we didn't really know the neighbors that well. We haven't been there that long. But I I did know the girl's name, she was, excuse me, playing in the garden, called Elena. And uh, she was looking really sad, uh, and I liked this girl because I could recognize in her she was quite shy. You know, I was shy as a kid. So I went out and I had my drum and I said, Elena, can I play you a song, an African song with your name in it? Now, we'd, we'd learned this African song called Imela. It's beautiful kind of when you harmonize it. And so I was going, Elena, Elena. And I was keeping this beat going. And um and the dad came out and he he worked for a small publishing company called Pegasus. And, it, and we just got chatting. Oh no, at, at that point, he worked for the Independent on Sunday. And I thought, oh, maybe I can get a gig out of this because I'd used. The Independent on Sunday as a rhythm in workshops sometimes to teach people, because you can go. And if you get a whole crowd doing that, it sounds like the Burundi drummers. You know, if you bring it in in different places in the bar, it's amazing. So he said, yeah, that he said the Independent were too conservative. We'd never go for it. But my mate runs this uh, publishing company called Pegasus. He might be interested in the team building thing. And, uh, uh, and I thought, I looked him up online, Pegasus, tiny company. I thought, well, that's no good. Anyway, I was kind of hooked in at that point. I said, yeah, of course, I'll go and do it. It's no money. But he said, you might get something out of it, you know. So I went and did it. It's, uh, it's only 15 people. They absolutely loved it. Forgot about it. 15, let me think, what was it? No, it's about three. Three months later, the phone started ringing off the hook. Will you come and do team building drumming for me? Will you come and do team building? I was going. What? I said to them, "What's happened? Something's happened." And and that guy from Pegasus, he had written a piece of editorial in B. I. What do you believe this? BA's In Flight Magazine. Right. So I had this captive audience across the Atlantic reading about me, and they've done this illustration, not of me, but a businessman. Uh, with a headband and shakers and stuff it, it's great and very very um genuine he said people were meeting uh, he, he said people in this company they said what is it about you people who were at that drumming session you all seem so sort happy and connected you know you're chatting to each other in the lift they said that doesn't happen in this organization what's happened so he wrote about that and um, one of the companies was GSK, and they said, uh, "Will you come and see us?" So we're driving up there, and I said, "I'm going to look up something about them." And they got this credo, GSK credo, and they, they also had it in the foyer. So in the meeting, I mentioned some of those things from their credo, and they go, "Nobody's ever, ever." even read our credo before let alone build it into their pitch so this guy and i i was wearing my i was wearing a coat a bit like this and um he told me later paul Cullerton. we got to know each other well he said you know when he, when he turned up and um, when i called down are you there yeah and the receptionist said yeah harry potter's in the foyer waiting to see you. so, so, <laughs> so. That's so brilliant <laughs> we went he he said would he come and um would he come and do a thing for our team in Vienna at the hotel Sacher, which is the best hotel in Vienna right See, all these Global leaders of Gsk and so yeah it went really well only 20 of them and individually they all came up to me at the bar almost um, conspiratorially you know in that mischief way and said would you come to Moscow and do this? I'd love to do this, but don't tell the others. Would you come to Istanbul and do this? so? Consequently, oh, do you know what I said G S K it was Johnson Johnson J because um there was a song that I learned in South Africa called Sing J and J and J. Sing J and J, and J get my off. So I used to sing that to them, and I told them that some of the money that you're paying us is going to the family that I learned that song from because i said I'd build them a house in exchange for the song so we built this great house in this township that's really a ghetto and then other people heard that story and they said oh really uh we want to build a house so we ended up creating this charity called um oh it's ai am a, I'm a yeah, Amatuba, It means um, building opportunities. They had this strap line, building opportunities, Amatuba. and and the guys who built the houses then learned the skills as they went along, and they set up their own little building company. They bought a van, and they they now do sort of the white suburbs, doing patios and stuff together. Like that. So that came out. So then when. Um, I I did that for about two years. I was going all around the world with these people. And when I got back, I was talking to a mate of mine, also in the uh, kind of team building business. And he said, Tom, how did you, he said, I've employed all sorts of PR people, all sorts of marketing. How did you get that editorial in BA's in-flight magazine? I said, well, you know, I I just sang a song to a girl who, who looked a bit unhappy. That's it.
0: Beautiful, Tom. It's trigger,
1: As they say, so I just keep living, 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 living like this. People are always saying, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? That's not going to lead to That's not. You, you need to become a LinkedIn strategist, you know, post every day at the same time. Talk about what's going on. If it's Christmas, do a post about Christmas. It's all nonsense. All that stuff. To me, it's nonsense. Maybe it works for other people. It's just a judgment for me to say it's nonsense. But I am not going to do that i i cannot it's it's, it's, it's i think it, you have a different
0: a different makeup and a different path through life tom and yeah. it's working because the stories that you have are incredible and the the career that you have the journey that you're on um it, it's phenomenal you know we we were talking a little bit before we started recording you know the sooner netflix or somebody picks you up for a series or the sooner <laughs> your your book gets published the better because there are some tales and stories that they're just hard. To, I mean, they're hard to fathom. Um, they're incredible stories. So, thank you for sharing those those wonderful examples. Before I run out of time with you, though, yeah. I need yeah. to ask you a few other things. If yeah. That's okay. yeah, sure. Now, when you think over the career that you've had and the inspirations that you've had, there must have been people that you admired along the way. Uh, whether it was guys you were kind of half ignoring in a bar in Leeds or whether it was people in sort of business life, you know, flying around the world doing team building or, or it could be just from somebody from your childhood, but who's inspired you along the way. When I ask you that question, who jumps into your mind as people that you admire or that you look up to?
1: Well, the first person that jumps into my mind and she has done ever since I heard about it is, is Rosa Parks because she, in a, in a very small action that anybody could have done, um, sparked the whole civil rights movement in America by not going to the back of the bus. You know, I don't, you, you must know the story, the buses were segregated, white people sat at the front, black people sat at the back and there was a division. And even if they were sitting at the back and a white person got on and there was no seat for them at the front a black person would have to stand up to give a seat to, and they'd move the division now by the simple act of saying no i'm you know i'm tired there's the the bus was pretty much empty anyway uh, i'm not going to go to the back of the bus so they got the police she was arrested and it it it, it was it was like um you know sim- similar to Emmeline Pankhurst throwing herself in front of the King's Hall. The, 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 it's going, it's going, it's going, everybody knows about it, and then bang, you know, there's that one thing where people go, no, you know, this can't, this can't go on. Um. So I'm always looking for my version of not going to the back of the bus. It doesn't have to be, comp- you know, I'm not Che Guevara, I'm not going to organise a whole freaking troop of (laughs) people to land in the Bay of Pigs I I am an event organizer but uh um I'm not a revolutionary in that way but I but Rosa Parks was a revolutionary in in her own way she found that she found that point I mean she wasn't even trying to do that she was just standing up for herself so um there's a, so anyone who does that sort of thing in the world, they're my, and, and, and the second person, when you ask that question, actually, was my art teacher at school, because I had been through quite a hard time, you know, my mum had died, my, nobody knew at school, or she knew, but nobody, in those days, I was 13, so that would have been, or 1967, there was no counselling, there was, everyone was just embarrassed, nobody wanted to talk about it very few people knew she knew and she i'd go into the art class i was in the sixth form at that point and she'd say to all of us not just me i mean she did this to everybody but she paid i think she paid some special attention to me She'd say okay tom so what are we doing today do you want to carry on with that collage you were doing or do you want to do something completely different i've just got this new paper in you may want to try uh, doing something on that and she'd really look after me and then she'd come around there was me and there was a I mean there was a gang of us there was four of us we were the sort of hippies of the class the freaks and she knew she knew we we're all smoking dope and behind the bike sheds and everything but she she was cool right um and uh, so she would she just had this enthusiasm about her that reminded me, and I'll tell you one other person, my, my grand, my gran, he said the war, the Second World War was the, was the best of times and the worst of times, because um, they all used to look after each other all the time. She was she was in the Blitz in London. And I've told this story many times, but I'll tell you briefly, um, she said when the bombs were falling in the Blitz, they used to go into the underground and the children were anxious, they couldn't sleep. So they used to sing to them. And I, I, I'd say, what, the singers used to sing? No, we'd all just sing. And I'd go, well, the singers and the actors and performers, they'd sing. No, we always sing. Because if you heard your parents singing, then um, you, you'd think, oh, everything's all right. And then that would harmonize. All the people who could sing would harmonize. Right? So that's this beautiful thing going on. Every night in her particular tube, anyway, that she went to, her mum was a singer play piano in the, in the local pub. Um, so it, so that, um, these kind of everyday heroes, uh, and the reason that they're all everyday heroes to me, are because they had the choice, they had the choice to say, oh, now we've got to do three months of singing lessons before we can possibly sing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Rosa Parks could have gone, oh, you know, I don't want any trouble. I'll just go to the back of the bus. You know, We all just, it, and it's, and how that links in my behavior um, is, well, there's the BBC. Well, let's just go and hand it in. Something might happen. Something might happen. We, we weren't out to start a DIY revolution. We just wanted to hear our song on the radio because we're proud of it. And, and it did, wonderful. you know, people used to come around the house, and say, we want to make our own record, can you tell us, and we used to take them down the pub, tell them, just like Desperate Bicycles told us, you know, so. They're, back, back. they're wonderful
0: examples, Tom, wonderful. Uh, thanks so much for sharing those. Really. enjoy those. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you as well is, so that's kind of people that, that you admire and why you admire them. Uh, mm. Three great, three great examples there. But what about advice? So you just t- touched on it there a little bit because you said people would knock your door and say, "Hey, how do I do this DIY movement? How do I?" And you take them down the pub and show them, you know, tell mm. them what to do. But has there been advice that stuck with you, whether it's since you were a young child, throughout you, you know, your your, you know, the rise of the music industry that you were involved in um or, or through what you're doing maybe more today in terms of events and speaking yeah is there some advice that really stuck with you that you you know you think is really important or do you find yourself sharing a particular piece of advice to people that you really want to impart to our
1: audience okay do you know what it's, it's a great question i can't think of one person there's there's but what was occurring to me when you were saying that yeah um, were these two words serenading serendipity chanting to chance and rolling with the rhythm now they came to me I, i've been through some really dark time you know very very deep depressions year long sometimes and there's there's one time when my wife i couldn't stand sound it's weird for a musician i couldn't stand the noise of the traffic or anything she took me to an island of kenya off the kenyan coast called lama but there's no traffic no cars no cars allowed and she left me we were pretty much together most of the time but she said look you're safe on this balcony the sun's going and she said i'm just gonna let you i see you're resisting going so low you'll never come back but she said we have to let that happen i'm just gonna leave you i'm going into town gonna leave you um to drop you're lying down you're safe, and I dropped, and I dropped, and I dropped, and I dropped, and then then I did actually hit rock bottom, there is something physical, that there is a base, and in that base, there were two words, there was uh, harmony, and rhythm, that's it, everything else had gone, everything I'd done, achieved, every piece of this or that, every relationship, gone, 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 so when I came back, I surfaced gradually. I mean, the story of how how I surfaced is in the book. It was over months, but um, I thought, well, I don't need it. You know, I was still alive. I just got these two words. Um, what shall I build around them? I don't have to have anything. I don't have to have a tax return. You know, actually, I do have to have a tax return, but you know what I mean? It's not a priority. <laughs> what can I do? With harmony and rhythm and that you know it really brought me to, i was already doing the work i do now but i i it brought me back in a different way and, and and people say to me they say we saw you on stage at the beginning of our conference and uh we just hated you um 200 of us why do we have to go through this? leading team building every year and um but that, and they said but you had this kind of glow around you, and you had such a belief that we were going to do it um that we just kind of went along with it and then uh and then it it worked didn't it like how did you know it's going to work and I, and i and it comes from that place harmony rhythm because i see it everywhere in the world. So so I guess my advice would be allow yourself to be stripped of all the advice all the emotion you've got tied up in your brand, whatever it is you're doing allow yourself sometime you don't have to get depressed, you could just go and lie on the South Downs or something or lie in a bath go to a spa allow all that stuff to fall away and and see what's there and there will be something it won't it won't be harmony and rhythm it it may be i don't know what it could you know it could be it could just be authentic leadership or you know it'll be something ah that's what i'm about i'm about authentic leadership how do i take that to world? and then energetically because it's so simple you will just collect, it will be like going around the supermarket and going, no, 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 Oh, yeah, I'll have some of that. No, 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 oh, I'll have some of that. It's like, <laughs> and, and anyone who's been um, on any sort of diet, especially when you're cutting out sugar, will know 90% of things in the supermarket you cannot put in that basket. They're all good. So it's it's like a version of that. It's like giving up sugar, but, but you give up all the nonsense that you're told, you have to do it this way. You have to do it that way. yeah The shelves are full of. You have to do it this way. No, I'm just going to have that. Thank you very much. It's and you get advice. to the checkout. You get to the checkout, and people go. People don't normally buy these. <laughs> where did where did you find them? Well, I found them. Yeah, <laughs> it's
0: great advice, and thank you for sharing that, Tom. Uh, it's really good. Uh, the last couple of things before we wrap up today, I want to mm. squeeze them in if I can. Uh, at the time of recording this, we've got another year ahead. We, you know we're we're looking at new plans. You yourself have plans and ideas and mm. you're constantly evolving. What's taking up your mental capacity at the moment? What are you thinking about when you think about six months, twelve months, or are you mm. just living in the moment and serendipity? and mm. how does that work for you, Tom?
1: i am, I'm lucky enough to um, to been doing some work with jamie wheel who wrote the book stealing fire from the gods and recapture the rapture ja- jamie he, he is one of the most advanced thinkers of our time and he speaks in a very uh he's not an academic i mean academically he is brilliant but he speaks in a non-academic way and recently just a few days ago i watched the thing about his new book and his new book is about it's not written yet but it's about the stories we've been using in society that have now run their course and and he's and Kurt Vonnegut mapped them Joseph Campbell mapped them you know there's only a few stories in the world or story structures one of them is rags to riches now rags to riches suited us fine for a lot of the industrial Revolution, because that's what we saw. We saw you could start or and you could uh, oh, if I work hard enough, it's what the American dream is based on. Work hard enough da, da, da. however, um in the last ten years, or at least since um we've been seeing climate change in the news on a daily basis, we can't do the rags to riches story anymore. I mean, they try. But it doesn't resonate anyone. So, this does answer your question, by the way. So, so he says another story um, which often follows rags to riches, Shakespeare used it a lot, is um, tragedy. So, it's like you start here and gra- oh, let's do it that way. You start here, uh, but everything gradually gets worse. It, it goes to entropy, where some scientists would say, of course, it's always going to go to, to entropy. But um, that's too sad and the the most popular story is the cinderella story which is down ah go to the ball slipper midnight really down oh god devastated oh gradually hey hey you know slipper fits marry the prince so even more up than you were here so he um he talks about and it's what Martin Luther King talked about, when when things have been so bad, and you've been through this dread, you know, when you come back, you said there's something called soul force. Different spiritual leaders will call it different things, but I like that MLK version, soul force, and it's it's like a state of grace, and it is like that um, serenading serendipity. You just do On a daily basis, every moment you get a choice. It could just be, what am I going to eat for breakfast? How am I going going to ignore that person? Or am I going to speak to them? Am I going to help? I'm not talking about sort of random acts of kindness. It's more subtle than that. It's, um, am I going to promote beauty now? Am I going to promote good? Am I going to breathe in this situation where everybody seems anxious? I'm not going to tell them all to calm down. I'm just going to breathe for us all. And then gradually everyone calms down. So and and he said in his previous books, there will be, you know, we will form uh, from all these people like Burning Man, all these different festivals, all these different communities, we will form thousands of experiments of how to live socially. And um, most of them will fail. They'll be very noble. Most of them will fail. Some of them will work. And we'll take those as examples of how to build the future. I, I was at a party on, on Boxing Day, and a lot of people we'd never met before. We only, well, No, we only meet once a year at this party, right? Some of us are musicians. And I said to I gathered the musicians, which I can do. I'm allowed to do as a drummer. Um. And I said, and they're all going, oh, it's been a terrible year. Oh, yeah, we lost all the funding. And I said, yeah, well, that's the, the government. You, you notice how the government aren't that keen to fix it all. They're keen to talk about it, but they're not keen to fix it. Because as long as we're anxious, then there'll be no revolution. Um, so I said, but the revolution is in this room tonight. Every note we play, every harmony we create, everyone we get dancing. This is the revolution, and I tell you, if if it had been on Netflix, the, you know the golden lights for the because it, we all played so incredibly well, and we, it was so joyous. And um, some of the young people there who we'd watched grow up at that party when they were now teenagers, and they said, "We want to sing the harmony, or we, we've got a song we want to do." They don't whip out the lyrics. They just get their phone and look it up. So it looks like they're checking their email, but they're just looking at the lyrics on the phone. So, um, so I think that uh, I, I just want my 2023 to be full of that, and not just for me, but I I'm confident now, not in an arrogant way, but I'm confident that wherever I land, if I have that in my heart, then um, I can create something. My uh, I don't yet say it on my website, but I say it a lot to people. I reintroduce people to their own creativity. That's, that's what my life is all about. And I can't do that as a politician. I can't say it. I've I'm here today to reintroduce you. I can't even say it. To reintroduce you. To, yeah, but if I just create the <laughs> environment where they feel free you know to be creative you know the teenagers say we want to sing in harmony yeah yeah come on come on up we'll wait for you till you sorted your lyrics out you know so that's what i do so
0: love that tom thanks thanks for that that's a great that's a great um a great way of looking at it for this year and tell me the last thing i want to ask you is We talked about a lot there. And look, you and I could talk for days on end Mm. and I'd never get bored. You know, Mm. I'm riveted to the stories. But is there anything else that's on your mind that you think you'd like to share with our worldwide audience before we wrap up today? And the second thing I want to ask you is Mm. if people want to find out more about the book, the team building, the public speaking, everything that you're involved in, where are you sending people to? Where's the best place for people to reach out and connect with you at?
1: The best place, I'll do that first. The the best place um, is to go to tommorley.com. So it's T-O-M-M-O-R-L-E-Y.com. You can also, if you go to, if you can't remember that, but you can remember my name, you can go to Google, go to Google Images and type in Tom Morley Drummer and you'll see this wallpaper of me because i've laid every picture of me online i label tom morley drummer i don't let it go up as 3x2y jpeg you know and that's a tip for anybody you know and if you do that over years you build a legacy that no search engine can do anything with it's got to it's got to honor um that algorithm that you know you create over a long time um What's the other? Yeah, and you can just put in Tom Morley on Facebook. I'm on Facebook 24 hours. Um, and i I'll just come up top in any search, uh, even though there's thousands of Tom Morley's. Because again, it's just something and and I I like being on Facebook. I I like you know, I've done some work with David Bowie, not not on his song Sound and Vision, but uh Sound and Vision are very much in my personal vibe, you know, I, I love being able to do a picture, do some writing, and then get some feedback immediately, you know, banging out like I was saying to you earlier, if I banging out at three o'clock in the morning, some story, some anecdote, some remembrance, some piece of wisdom that I've got from somewhere. Um, someone in Australia will go at three o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, thanks, Tom. That's really what I needed to hear on that. I love, I absolutely love it. I love it.
0: Well, look, Tom. That's 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 a beautiful note for us to uh, to end on today. I mean, it it it's been great speaking to you again. Um, it, it's fantastic. I'd encourage anybody to to follow what Tom's doing. He's making a real difference in the world. And uh, that brings us nicely to the end of this episode of the Global Interview. So, thank you to Tom. Thank you to everybody who's watching or listening around the world. Make sure that you like, follow, subscribe, do all the good things that we'd like you to do with the podcast. And I hope that you'll join me back here for more discussions with creatives, leaders, and thinkers. So, Tom, it's been a great pleasure to catch up with you again, my friend. Thanks so much. Um, and we'll it's been talk great to be here.
1: And it's it's and thank you for helping me link it all together because. uh, Like I say, this is my life, so I just experience it as this plate of spaghetti, but it actually seems to have some order.
0: Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. Talk soon, my friend.
1: Thanks. Take care.